Well, good morning, Grumlaw family. We are so glad that every single one of you decided to tune in today, especially if it is your first time watching here Grumlaw Online. We never take that for granted. Thank you for giving us a shot. Uh, today, we are continuing in a series titled Thriving in Babylon. Today is actually part three, and those first two parts of the series really lay the foundation for everything else that we're going to be speaking about throughout this series. So it's really, really important that you go and you catch yourself up if you are not here for parts one and two at grumlaw.com slash messages, or you can find us in a girl in the law church on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you grab those podcasts. Now, the reason that we're calling this series Thriving in Babylon is because Babylon is actually a term used throughout history to describe the spirit of this world. Uh, not trying to freak anybody out, but all throughout human history and every civilization for all of time, right up now to present day, there has been an evil spirit that has been influencing our world and culture. I'm confident that every single one of you are feeling what I'm feeling, that, that culture seems to be shifting underneath our feet, headed into uncharted territory. How are we supposed to navigate this particular cultural moment? Well, fortunately for all of us, Daniel provides us with a playbook as to not how we only just survive in Babylon, but thrive. How not to simply endure but influence. In part one, we talked about how Babylon attempts to influence us. Last week, in part two, we talked about how the follower of Jesus influences Babylon. Because in a matter of 70 years, this is incredible, Daniel goes from a 13-year-old victim of human trafficking to becoming the second most powerful person in the most powerful nation on the entire planet. Daniel thrived in Babylon. And every single one of you who are watching right now, you can as well. Now, some of you, you might recall, in part one, I mentioned uh, that this book of Daniel, which we find near the end of the Old Testament, which is that first half of the Bible, it, it largely focuses in on the lives of four guys in particular. One, as you might guess, Daniel, as the title of the book kind of tips you off, and then three other guys that you probably heard of if you grew up going to church, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, these, of course, being their Babylonian names. We talked about that in part one, how they were given new Babylonian names after being exiled to Babylon, but their original Jewish names being Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. By the way, uh, it's never really quite sat right with me that, that Daniel, all throughout the text of Daniel, continues to be referred to as Daniel, his, his Israelite, his Jewish name. But, but these other three guys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they continue to be referred to as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Babylonian names. Another topic, perhaps, for another day. But today, we are going to take a deep dive into one of the most popular stories in the entire B-I-B-L-E. We find it in Daniel chapter 3. It is commonly referred to as the fiery furnace. Again, if you grew up going to church in Sunday school, this is a very, very powerful and a very, very popular one where God triumphantly rescues three young men from the blazing furnace and the wrath of a prideful king. Now, these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, at this point, they're somewhere in their mid-20s. And they stare down the most powerful person on the planet, Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, do what you got to do. We ain't bluffing. So we pick up in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. There it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and nine feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Uh, old Neb, you're reading that right, he made a statue of himself 90 feet tall. What this means is that in grade school, Nebuchadnezzar, he got himself an A-plus in self-confidence. The, the, the dude thought quite highly of himself, which as we see throughout this text, got him into some serious hot water all throughout his life. In fact, next week, we're actually going to take a deep dive into that, this whole issue of pride. Uh, he looked out into the world and he said, you know what this world needs? 
more of me. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. Again, the 90-foot statue of himself. Uh, This is actually a really interesting tidbit. Uh, All of these biblical scholars, they know that what are listed right here, that these are government positions, high officers, officials, governors, etc. But they actually have no idea (laughs) what each of these people did. Uh, kind of paving the way for today, where we have all these government positions and we have no idea what the, just kidding, sort of. Anyway, so all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. They're yelling out, yes, you heard that right. Neb now thinks so highly of himself that he would like all of you to start worshiping him, the statue of him, when the Babylonian band starts a ripping. Now, by the way, as a kind of a quick sidebar, the whole purpose of the worship band, the music that we have on display every single Sunday morning, is to draw attention to God, not the people on the stage. Seriously, one of the things that we often hear on Sunday mornings that actually sounds more like nails on a chalkboard to people like me and our weekend director and our music people is, man, just the band sounded so good today. Or, man, I can't wait to hear the music today. Boo. What we hope to hear more and more of around here is good grief. Did I ever encounter the living God today? Man, was it evident that the Holy Spirit was in the room today. Sheesh, did God ever speak to me through that music today? We're really a whole lot less concerned with how good the band may have sounded. Now, now what we see right here, we see this as a theme all throughout scripture, and it's on glaring display right here in Daniel chapter 3, that the spirit of Babylon always counterfeits what the spirit of God is doing. Or I could say it another way. More simply put, God creates Satan counterfeits. Church, Satan has never had an original idea ever. He's just counterfeiting what God has already set in motion, what God has already created. Right here again in that example, we see worship music is all about pointing people to God. We see counterfeit music trying to steer people towards Babylon. God is the true God of heaven. Satan is the counterfeit God of this world. God gives the Holy Spirit. Satan gives counterfeit spirits, demons, the spirit of Babylon. God creates revival. Satan counterfeits with riots. God calls people to repentance. Satan counterfeits with tolerance. Even if you're new to this whole church thing, you don't have to look very hard to see that Satan is still very much in the counterfeit game, drinking his mountain lightning while us real ones are throwing back the Mountain Dew. I thought of that joke like on Tuesday when I wrote this message and I just could not wait to throw it out there. But in all seriousness, here's why this is so important. Church, we need to understand that our battle on this earth is not against flesh and blood but against an evil spirit, the spirit of Babylon, against Satan himself, who is waging war against you, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, which means that as a church, it's not enough to be strategic, to be professional, to be excellent, though that is definitely something we work very, very hard for around here. But but we must be using prayer as our first line of offense and begging for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit if we are to stand a chance in Babylon, if we are not to only survive but thrive. Because God can do more in a minute than man can do in a lifetime of planning and strategizing. 
continues in verse six. It says, anyone who refuses to obey that this order to bow down to this 90-foot gold statue of Nebuchadnezzar will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, it's easy to read this and almost instinctively think to yourself, well, that's an idle threat, right? I mean, no king would actually follow through on this punishment, right? I mean, like, that, that's crazy. You're going to throw people into, into a furnace, into a fire, burn them alive if they don't bow down to a 90-foot statue of you? But, but let's just say that, that Nebuchadnezzar at this point, have, uh, he kind of developed a, a, a reputation. In fact, in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream, and he wants it to be interpreted. And so he calls for all these wise men, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers. And he says, hey, not only do I want you to interpret the dream, but I want you to tell me what the dream was to begin with. I'm not giving you any hints. And they're looking back and I'm going, wait, what? We, we can interpret the dream for you, but, but you have to tell us what the dream was. And he's like, no, I'm not even going to tell you what the dream was. And they're like, Nebuchadnezzar, nobody can do that. That's an impossible task. I've been playing this game with my kids lately. It's kind of like a, the a kid version of the game Punch Bowl where you get clues and then you kind of have to act them out. And so there are these little pictures. Maybe it's of like a fish or uh, maybe it's a bear or maybe it's like somebody drawing a picture and then your children have to try to act out what is on that picture. And my kids get like all amped up for this. And uh, the other day we're playing this and my son Malachi, uh, he goes and looks at his card and he's got this big smile on his face. And then he just holds up his hand and he says, I'm holding something. And we're like, uh, anything else? He's like, no. And we're like, okay, um, a remote control. No. A uh, ski pole. No. And we do this for like 20 different things. They're like, hey, Malachi, uh, you, you got to give us a little bit more to work with here, buddy. Try something else. And he just looks at me, deadpan. No. He just kept standing there with his hand in the air until eventually my wife and I, I'll be honest, we actually cheated. We looked at the car and we're like, an umbrella. And he's like, yes, you nailed it. This is exactly what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar. All they were like, okay, hey, you got to give us at least a little bit of a clue here. He's like, no, not a chance. And so he actually has all of them killed because they won't tell him the dream and even more than that, interpret the dream. Now, Daniel actually comes along and he pulls this off because, again, God gives him the wisdom to tell him not only what the dream is, but how to interpret it as well well. And then he's quick to obviously give God all of the credit as well. Bit of a spoiler alert, read about it for yourself. But my point is this, as insane as this would have sounded, people listened. They did it because Nebuchadnezzar had proven himself to be a complete lunatic whose bluff should not be called or else. Now, if this verse were to be translated for us modern readers in this particular cultural moment, it would read, anyone who refuses to bend their knee to culture will immediately be canceled. If you do not bow to this cultural ideology, you will be canceled, fired, deplatformed, your books will be removed from Amazon, your videos will be removed from YouTube, you are done. It'll be almost like you don't exist. See, our society right now, we don't have 90-foot-tall gold statues. We have 90 different ideologies hitting us from 90 different directions that you better wholeheartedly embrace and affirm or else. Their culture had literal gold idols. Our culture has ideologies. Bend your knee to our ideology or else. Now, I'm going to direct our attention to what is easily the most controversial chapter of scripture in the entire Bible, uh, but it speaks so beautifully to this theme that we see here in the book of Daniel and is on such glorious display in our present cultural moment. 
But we go to Romans chapter one, Paul's letter to the early Christian church in Rome. In verse 18, he says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You catch that? I want you to read this again for yourself. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What, what Paul is so obviously pointing out right here is that every single one of us, both the Christian and the non-Christian alike, we know the truth. Because God gave us this gift. He gave us this thing that is built into every single one of our brains called a conscience. And it's a gift because it instinctively steers us towards what is right and away from what is wrong, away from that which is naturally going to cause us harm. Now, some of us, we have long ignored this conscience. We have beat it into oblivion that we don't even recognize it anymore, but I promise you it's still there. We all know the truth, but, but to use Paul's words right here, we suppress it. Why? Because I don't like it. It, it disrupts my life. It it disrupts what comes easiest. It disrupts what is most convenient, even what feels natural. And, and I want to remind us of something that, that I remind myself of all the time. It was a seminal moment in my walk with Christ when I came to grips with the fact that virtually everything that comes natural to me leads me in the wrong direction. It exclusively leads me towards that which will only cause me harm. There's this term that we see all over right now in our society, cancel culture, cancel culture, cancel culture. And we are baited into thinking that this is something new. Y'all, it's not. It's exactly what Paul is talking about right here. Cancel culture is truth suppression. It's not anything new. Human beings since the beginning of time have decided, all of us, myself included, we prefer comfort over truth. It's, again, the ever-present spirit of Babylon. It existed in ancient Babylon with Daniel. It existed when Paul was talking to the Romans, and it clearly exists right now. Now, right now, I'm going to give us uh, this morning exactly one ideology that, that has been being beaten into our heads over the last couple of years in particular. And again, I want you to keep in mind, this is just one example in a sea of ideologies, in a sea of idols present in our culture right now. Again, just one example. Uh, and you'll see right now that I didn't exactly go reaching for a softball. I have a picture to show you right here. Uh, in part one, uh, you might recall that we spoke about the fact uh, that one of the things that the spirit of Babylon always attacks is healthy human sexuality that the foundational thought within Christianity that God made them male and female. Now, progressive Christianity would lead you to believe uh, that this is perhaps more of a gray area. Ch church, I'm telling you, it's not. It is very, very black and white. All throughout scripture, God makes it very, very clear that he made human beings male and female. Now, by the way, if you're new around here, I'm not saying that you have to embrace that. I'm not saying that you have to buy into that. I am just telling you what we as followers of Christ believe. We believe that the word of God, this book called the Bible, is the inerrant, unchanging word of God, that, that we don't get to pick and choose the parts that we like and we don't like. Again, it is God's truth. It is not a version of truth. It is quite literally the truth. Again, you don't have to subscribe to that, but that is what we as followers of Jesus would subscribe to. But back to my example that we're talking about here. In this picture, taken on February 17th, so about 10 days ago, uh, it's a picture right here of an Ivy League swimmer by the name of Leah Thomas handedly beating the next competitor in the 500 free by seven seconds. Uh, if you're not familiar with the sport of swimming, seven seconds is a very, very wide victory. 
Now, if you're not familiar with the story, Leah Thomas was born a biological male, but has been transitioning to a female and competing on the woman's side for about the last year. Since her switch to competing on the female side, uh, she has absolutely dominated. To, to put it in perspective, uh, she did formerly compete as a male. What's worth noting, she received a scholarship as a male athlete to an Ivy League school, but in the collegiate ranks as a male, she ranked 554th in the 200 freestyle. Now competing as a female, she ranks number one. So again, just make sure you're tracking with me. She went from 554th on the male side to number one on the female side. It's a biological fact that men possess a very, very clear physical advantage in the sport of swimming in particular, with on average a 36% greater skeletal muscle mass, 12% greater lung capacity, greater shoulder width, longer arms, larger hands, larger feet. Now, I just want to make this very, very clear. Uh, none of really what I'm saying right now in a vacuum is really all that controversial. I'm just declaring facts, scientific data. But, but what we're seeing in our world right now is that by pointing out facts like these, you are in turn labeled transphobic. You're immediately guilty and declared guilty of hate speech. Now, now to be very, very clear, and some of you, you, you love this example right now. You might not like what I'm about to say. If you are trans, to be very, very clear, if you are struggling with your gender identity, you are welcome at this church. This is a safe place for all people to explore Jesus. We don't arbitrarily draw that line anywhere. Like Jesus, we love all people. Like we see in the early beautiful picture of the first century church, there are plenty of people who disagree, but they still love each other extraordinarily well. That is what we are trying to do around here at Grumlaw. But by questioning this ideology, you're canceled, you're deplatformed, you're labeled simple-minded, you're ignorant, and you're excommunicated into the outer darkness of society. It's why this message might very well get removed from YouTube by the end of the week. I'll even admit to you, I'll be vulnerable. As I was writing this, I felt so much tension, so much anxiousness regarding this example and how I would be judged for using it. Now, the common rebuttal from, in particular, my generation on down is like, but Shay, but everything that I'm seeing, everyone believes this stuff. Everyone believes these things. No, everyone you have been allowed to hear says those things. Our society very carefully curates what makes it onto your Twitter feed. What makes it into your news feed and so on? And you better affirm this or else. Sexual ideologies in virtually every civilization in all of human history inevitably take center stage. If you continue reading in Romans, you'll see Paul address this very directly. Let me help us connect some dots real quick. This is not an accident. When God created everything else, you can look at the account of creation in the book of Genesis. When he creates everything else, he said it's good. He creates animals, it's good. He created land, it's good. He created water, it's good. Then he creates human beings. He creates the human body and he says it's very good. The spirit of Babylon always twists and manipulates, convincing human beings to worship created things rather than the creator. And given the fact that God elevates human beings above all other creation, it shouldn't stand as a huge shock that sexuality would most commonly be elevated to God-like status in every culture in all of human history. That the spirit of Babylon takes what God declared very good and it's attempting to make it ultimate in our lives. And guess what? It's working. Even replacing God himself. Worship and serve created things rather than the creator. If we skip ahead to the end of Paul's letter to the early church in Rome, he, he doubles down. He says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those 
who practice them. That the spirit of Babylon not only suppresses truth, it actively affirms and approves the ideologies, the idols of our day, that stand in stark contrast to God's truth. That they throw parties, they have parades to affirm their ideologies. And then Babylon demands your approval. Unless I celebrate your ideology, I'm intolerant. Listen, if you're so insecure in your beliefs that you need my approval, maybe you should re-examine your convictions. Now, I touched on this last week. This whole intentionality of choosing comfort over truth, which, by the way, every single one of us gravitate towards, Christian, non-Christians alike, Church, this should be expected from those who don't claim to be Christians, who do not claim Christ. Again, as we talked about last week, godless people are going to live godless lives. And I don't mean that derogatory when I say that. If you don't have God as a part of your life, you're going to live a life that is separate from him. And by the way, if that would describe you, we are so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're exploring. We're so glad that you're beginning to take steps closer to him. As you move towards God, he will always move towards you. But what's increasingly alarming, in particular in my role as a pastor, are the number of people that I see in many right here in this faith community who, who claim Christ, but yet are bending your need to culture right alongside your Babylonian neighbor. Last week, we talked about four different positions that Christians take in regards to Babylon. One is separation. You completely separate yourself from the world of Babylon, and you only associate yourself with other Christians. God's not for that. Then there's the opposite of that, what we call assimilation. A lot of what we're talking about right now, you bend your knee to culture, you live right alongside the Babylonian, there's nothing distinguishable in your life from a Babylonian's life. Then there's altercation. You take this us versus them approach and you're battling Babylon. Again, God's not smiling down on that. But then there's transformation. Three of these are bad and one is good. And we think about transformation as instructed by the prophet Jeremiah and modeled by Daniel and his friends. Followers of Jesus should absolutely assimilate into the life of Babylon, but we are not called to adopt Babylonian behaviors and beliefs. As a follower of Jesus, you're called to be a good Babylonian until being a good Babylonian means being a poor follower of Jesus. I want to make this very clear. As a follower of Jesus, and again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you do not need to subscribe to this. But as a follower of Jesus, if you don't like something that Scripture teaches, again, a foundational thought in following Christ is that the Bible isn't a version of truth. It is the unchanging, inerrant Word of God. It is the truth. If you don't like something that Scripture teaches, you need to ask God to change your heart. If you don't, for instance, like what the Bible teaches about money, that, that it's a tool being used here on this earth to leverage the kingdom of God, that, you, that it's all came from God in the per- first place, and you're called to give a percentage back to the local church. If you don't like that teaching, you need to ask God to change your heart. If you don't like what the Bible teaches about sex in particular, and you're like, oh my gosh, this just stands in such stark contrast to what's happening in our society, you need to ask God to change your heart because God is not changing for you or anyone else. The only thing he's willing to change is you, your heart. Y'all, I want to be very vulnerable and very clear. I've said this before. There is plenty, plenty in Scripture I am fully acknowledging that, that I don't particularly like, that, that doesn't sit well with me, that, that full disclosure, I just wish it wasn't in there. 
A, a lot of stuff that if it wasn't in there, it would make my job as a pastor so much easier. Church, I don't have to try and be controversial as I speak from these stages here online. All I have to do is teach from this book called the Bible. It takes care of that for me. But this is foundational in following Jesus. Will I follow Jesus no matter what or up to the point that it inconveniences and disrupts my life? Is Jesus my Lord and Savior or is he only my Savior? Because church, if he's only your Savior... You can take all the stuff that sits well with you, namely Jesus giving up his life to save your hiney from that nagging sin problem that you had no ability to solve yourself, and you can ignore all the stuff that disrupts your life and calls you to actually start living differently. There's a name for this, by the way. I've already alluded to it in this talk. It's called progressive Christianity. More than ever in the history of this world, and largely due to social media and the dawn of the internet, and yes, even in Christian circles, if you want to find someone or something to affirm your thinking, to affirm your ideology, you're not going to have to look very hard. A, a very common occurrence in my life, after I preach, are people who approach me and, and tell me that something in the sermon had offended them, that they don't really like it, and then they'll show me a clip, or, or they'll pull a transcript from another preacher saying the complete opposite thing, and they're like, look, see, here it shows it, you're wrong. Am I supposed to be impressed by that? If you want to find someone or something to affirm what you have already decided in your head, you are not going to have to look very far. So, what did these three young men do? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. When met with the imperative, you bend your knee to culture or else. Very simple. They did not participate. They did not participate. We talked about this in part one. That they did not bend their knee to culture. That they drew a line in the sand and they said, Nebuchadnezzar, no further. We do not go any farther than this. Church, this is really important. They didn't stage a protest. They didn't adopt Babylonian tactics and rally all their Jewish friends together to hang signs out their window that said, hashtag never neb. They simply, peacefully, without any fanfare whatsoever, they said, we will not participate in this Babylonian charade. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar, we'll be good Babylonians, even contributing to the betterment of this community that we find ourselves in, but we draw the line exactly where being a good Babylonian means being a poor servant to God Almighty. Nebuchadnezzar, we don't bow to you. We don't bow to Babylon. We bow to the Almighty God who will still be on his throne long after you are buried in a hole. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He'll rescue us from your power, your majesty, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. These three young men, so wise beyond their years, had long decided that God just wasn't their Savior, but their Lord. When faced with the pressure of bend your knee or else, they respectfully, again without any fanfare, said, no thank you, we will not be participating 
If you grew up in church, you know how the story goes. Neb, he loses his mind. He chucks them into the furnace. And wouldn't you know it, God comes through, saving them without even a hair on their head singed. In fact, the Bible gives us such detail into this particular event. Scripture actually tells us they didn't even smell like smoke once they emerged from the flames. But I want to wrap up our time together this morning by focusing on four words. Even if he doesn't. See, it's really, really easy to have big faith when you're positive that God's going to come through. <laughs> but, but here's the problem with that. And any of the people who are watching right now who are following Jesus for really any amount of time, you'll be the first to admit to this. You never really know for sure, do you? That, that's kind of the whole idea of faith, right? Your entire walk with Jesus could constantly have these four words thrown on the end, even if he doesn't. See, church, if it was a guarantee, everyone would follow Jesus. But, but what makes faith? Well, faith is following Jesus even when we're not sure of the outcome. It's a trust that God absolutely can. But even if he doesn't, I'm still going to follow. I am still going to worship him. See, you can choose not to participate at work. And God may preserve your position with that employer. He, he may preserve your career. But even if he doesn't, worship him. You can refuse to live with your boyfriend, live with your girlfriend. God may cause that relationship to be even stronger. He might cause it to thrive. But it might not work out that way. And even if he doesn't, worship him. You can turn from your previous way of living and God might allow you to maintain your relationships with those people that you used to engage with, but even if he doesn't, worship him. I will not bend my knee to culture. I choose truth over acceptance. I choose my God over the approval of men. He's my savior and my Lord. And in doing so, God may lift me up. But even if he doesn't, I will still follow. I will still worship him. As a follower of Jesus, my faith isn't attached to circumstances. It's attached to a risen Savior, the God of the universe, who got off of his throne for me. It's attached to the God who died for me so that I might have new life. I don't worship the gifts. I worship the giver. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, my eternity is secure. I know that my heavenly father is absolutely crazy about me and adores me more than anything. So even if he doesn't, I choose to worship him.